It's holiday season. Uh, many of us are going or have already gone for vacations, and some old friends are here uh, on vacation in Singapore, praise the Lord. In this age of uh, World Wide Web, GPS, data roaming, and social media, I'll bet most of us plan our own trips nowadays. Tour guides and tour groups are usually not preferred because we don't know who we'll meet. Some tourists uh, met a really bad tour guide uh, back in 2015. Footage filmed in uh, China captures a tour guide berating tourists for not buying more souvenirs as their frugal spending deprives her of the commission she earns on their purchases. Here's what the tour guide said after a stop at a local tourist trap, I mean local jewellery store. A tourist on the other bus bought a bracelet that cost between 30 to 40,000 yuan. He spent more than all the people in this bus combined. If you keep on like this, the tour is going to be cancelled and you will have to work out how to get home on your own dime. I, uh, if you are struggling in life, tell Jesus. Don't become tourist terrorist. There are, in truth, uh, unprofessional tour guides out there who fleece their customers yeah, and neglect their pleasure. Yet not all tour guides are bad. There are good ones and they can be a great blessing. Good tour guides lead their groups to Instagrammable locations, feed us with facts and figures, as well as authentic local cuisine. They set boundaries so that we don't stray off into shady areas and uh, offend the local people. Good tour guides assist with translations when we are shopping and protect us from unwelcome peddlers. If we fall sick or get injured, they can rush us to the nearest doctor. Above all, they help us to navigate quickly through travel documents, airport guidelines, and local traffic. I'm not trying to sell tour packages today. I'm just trying to suggest a contemporary parallel to the metaphor of shepherd and sheep in Ezekiel's prophecy. The metaphor of shepherd and sheep is well known and commonly used in the ancient Near East to illustrate a king's relationship to his subjects. For example, a Babylonian proverb goes like this. A people without a king is like sheep without shepherd. And in ancient Egyptian writings, it is common to say, the God has chosen the king to be the shepherd of Egypt and the defender of the people. Despite its uh, ancient popularity, the associations between shepherd and king, sheep and subjects are diminished for us because we live in a concrete jungle. But I hope that the introduction uh, on tour guides modern-day shepherds of people, as it were, enriches our understanding. What is God telling us using this metaphor in Ezekiel 34? Before we can answer that question, we need to dive into the life and times of Ezekiel. The man Ezekiel was born during the reign and reform of King Josiah of Judah. He came from a priestly family and was training to become a priest for the temple. Unfortunately, War broke out. Ezekiel's life was changed forever. At the age of 26, when most Singaporeans embark on their careers, Ezekiel was taken into Babylonian exile. Then in the fifth year of their exile, 30-year-old Ezekiel was given to see a theophany. Face to face with the glory of the Lord God Almighty, Ezekiel accepted the call to become a prophet of the Lord, the watchman of Israel. 
Over the next few years, he will prophesy the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in many bizarre ways. If you know Ezekiel, uh, cook cakes on cow dung, lie on his side for many days, cut his hair, throw away. Okay, read yourself. Huh? These prophecies are recorded in chapters 4 to 32. Eventually, in the 12th year of their exile, Jerusalem fell to Babylon according to the word of the Lord. And he records the day he receives this bad news in chapter 33. Interestingly, on the eve of the bad news, the Lord appoints Ezekiel as the watchman of Israel again, renewing his contract, uh, employment contract, as it were. God made this move to give Ezekiel a reason for living since his homeland was about to be destroyed. What is also significant about this second calling is Ezekiel's job description changed. He shall no longer be a prophet of judgment and woe. He is hereafter a prophet of hope and joy. He will speak salvation to Israel, to all the nations, indeed to all creation. And these oracles are recorded in 34 to 48 of his prophecy. Just as God has given Ezekiel a hope for the future, God also gave the rest of the exiles a future to hope for. Now to answer our earlier question. God uses the metaphor of shepherd and sheep to speak a message of hope to his people. Although our passage contains charges and judgments, these are not the main points. They are the backdrop, the reasons for God's saving work. Indeed, the focus of this chapter is on what God promises to do personally for his people. Therefore, our message for today is this. Hope in the hands-on Saviour God when all things seem lost. Chapter 4 reminds us that the Israelites were going through exile because of the failure of their leaders and their people. We begin by examining how the kings of Israel have failed their subjects. Picking out their charges from verses 3 to 4, we see that the shepherds eat the fat, clothe themselves with wool from the sheep, slaughter the fat ones for mutton soup and lamb chops, and rule over them with force and harshness. To help us translate these metaphorical expressions into real-life behaviours, we turn to 1 Samuel 8, because Samuel had foretold how kings will feed on their subjects. Samuel said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tent of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." One imagines that the king's demand for manpower, products and services from his subjects is a reasonable exchange if the king fulfills his duty. But as it turns out, the kings of Israel were preoccupied with what they were getting and neglecting what they should be giving in return. As verse 3 points out for us, they do not feed the sheep. Feed the sheep is often taken to mean teaching God's word. But here it means to judge the people. This interpretation is the only way to explain why the Lord says in verse 16, I will feed them in justice. 
Therefore, we understand that the primary duty of the king is to ensure justice prevails in the land. But the kings of Israel have themselves been unfair to their people, leaving their subjects aggrieved. And this is not the only way the kings of Israel have failed. Verse 4 says that they have not done what they should for the weak, the sick, the injured, the stray, and the lost. What all of this means is the kings have failed to protect their people from violence, failed to provide for food and housing, and failed to promote their health and prosperity. And now the Israelites are scattered all over the face of the earth and become food for all the wild beasts. That is to say, they are slaves and servants of enemy nations. The kings of Israel are to be blamed for their exile. Also at fault are the people of Israel who have failed one another. Their charges are in verses 18 to 19. The sheep of the flock feed on the good pasture and drink of clear water. But after they have had their fill, they tread down on the pasture and muddy the water with their feet, such as those who come after them eat and drink under lesser conditions. It's like you go out too late for refreshments, only left crumbs. Lah. No, not, not. We always prepare enough, huh? don't worry. But these are vivid images of economic inequality in ancient Israel society. The powerful, privileged members of Israel, represented by fat and strong sheep, have greater sources of income and more opportunities compared to the powerless and needy people represented by the lean and weak sheep. On top of this, the strong take advantage of the weak. In verse 21, the Lord says, the sheep push with shoulder and side and thrust at all the weak with horns. This time, we turn to Ezekiel 22 for explanations. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with content in you. The sojourners suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains, that is, idolatry. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. We see that the rich and powerful in Israel have utter disregard for the elderly, the sojourners, the fatherless, the widow and the poor. They take money from them using dishonest and violent methods, even resorting to murder. Such a society is contrary to God's design. The society God envisions for us is filled with neighborly love and care. Jesus describes this ideal human society in Matthew 25, which was supposed to be our second reading for this morning. But we didn't read it because we read it yesterday and they all fell asleep. So um, yeah, here's Matthew 25 now. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me.
Who are the shepherds today and who are their flock? Ezekiel 34 is often applied narrowly to church pastors and their congregation, but I believe that the application should not be so limited because for one thing, I don't want to scold myself and my colleagues are not here for me to scold. No. Objectively, the history of the metaphor and our text clearly shows that shepherds refer to political kings and not religious priests. Hence, we should be applying our passage to national leaders. The flock then refers to citizens of the country. National leaders and citizens both have a part to play in the survival and prosperity of a country. This happens to be what our Deputy Prime Minister, Mr Lawrence Wong, believes in as well. Last month, at the launch of the Forward Singapore report, our DPM called for collective efforts from the government and the citizens because it will not be possible for the government alone to do everything through policy changes, nor is it possible for any individual to succeed on his or her own efforts alone. And in his speech, DPM also said, we are facing tougher domestic challenges from inequality to rapidly aging population. All this can easily pull us apart as a society create more divisions and polarizations in Singapore and cause our social compact to fray. Indeed, if we are not careful, we risk following in the footsteps of ancient Israel where inequality multiplies social injustices. Fortunately, our 4G leaders and fellow Singaporeans have co-created a roadmap for us to build a more vibrant, more equal and more united country. Vibrant in the sense that there will be opportunities for all Singaporeans to get good jobs and to enjoy increasingly better standards of living. Equal in the sense that everyone's basic needs are met, including the needs of children, persons with disabilities, workers in lower income groups and retired seniors. United because the people are called to look out for one another. We should not look just to our own success but also to the success of others. Those who have done well should do more to uplift those with less, be it through financial donations or through offering their time and expertise to volunteer, mentor and support those in need. I must add here quickly that I'm not plagiarising his speech, uh, although I've quoted large chunks of it. I just believe that his points are worth reiterating because this Forward Singapore roadmap is closely aligned to what our Lord envisions for us, isn't it? Therefore, we should all get behind this plan. Nevertheless, plans are plans. What if our leaders fail us? What if we fail one another? What about other nations who do not have responsible governments and responsible citizens? What hope do they have? Returning to our text, the kings of Israel failed their people and the people failed one another. Therefore, God decided that enough is enough. It's time to get hands on and show them how it's done. We know this from the many I will statements in verses 10 to 16 and 20 to 22. It is hard to miss the fact that God is promising to do for Israel the exact opposite of what the kings of Israel have done. Here's an example of how God's shepherding actions are completely different to human shepherding. 
the exact opposite. Unlike human shepherds, God will protect, God will provide, and God will prosper his flock. Now, three other I will statements were given particular emphasis. They are verse 11. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down. And verse 20. Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. The redundant use of double pronouns, I myself, deliberately draws our attention to the shocking fact that God is willing to get personally involved in Israel's mess and turn things around for them. These statements are also important because they re-establish God's relationship to his people. God says he will personally search for his people and gather them back safely to the promised land. However, not all Israelites will be rescued. God will personally judge between them. Only the faithful and righteous will be selected to form the new people of God. The idolatrous and unrighteous will be left out. This is God's justice. Then God himself will become the king of this new people. He will make a new covenant of peace with them and he will bless them with all that they have lost and more. After stating his divine intentions, the Lord declares in verses 23 to 24, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, I am the Lord, I have spoken. For Ezekiel and the exiles, there are two significant promises which inspire much hope. One, the promise of one shepherd means that the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel will finally be reunited under one single king. They will be one united people in the future. Two, the promise that this human king will be from the line of David means that God has not forgotten his promise to David. Even though the descendants of David are now in exile, a son of David will be king again in the future. If God remembers his promise to David, then God will surely remember his promises to Israel. The Lord spoke to Ezekiel and the exiles this hope for the future so that they may have courage to continue living in the present even though their past lives have been destroyed. This hope became a reality when Zerubbabel, the prince of Judah, gathered the exiles from Babylon and returned to Jerusalem with them. The hands-on God truly rescued a remnant and turned things around for them. There is a curious mystery in this text, though. Did you notice that after all the emphasis on divine personal action, the Lord delegates a human shepherd to rule in his place? Is the Lord contradicting himself? Now, this would have been puzzling to Ezekiel, but today we are able to resolve this mystery because we have the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that while Zerubbabel was the first shepherd of the flock, he was not the 
ultimate one. After him came Jesus, who declared that he is the good shepherd. Since Jesus is the son of God and also the son of David, he is the perfect fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. As it turns out, the human shepherd who is prophesied to come is God himself. Once we understand that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, we see no contradictions in the word of God. In Christ, God really did what he said he would do. He came to seek and save the lost and was directly involved with the flock as an earthly shepherd. In the end, he laid down his life for the sheep. It doesn't get any more hands-on than this. I mentioned earlier that God's promises of one united people under a Davidic king was first fulfilled in Zerubbabel and that these promises are fulfilled again in Jesus Christ who gathers both Jews and Gentiles into one church. But there remains one final fulfillment in future. Christ the king will return one day and on that day the king will gather all the righteous sheep into his eternal kingdom and cast the unrighteous goats into eternal punishment. This is promised to us in Matthew 25. The Lord gives us this hope of final judgment and future kingdom so that we may have courage to continue living in the present world in spite of the great uncertainty right now. Allow me to conclude. We live in a world of darkness and of light. If we find ourselves in the light, let us heed Jesus' warning and play our part to create a loving, caring and just society. Remember also to pray for our leaders that they may stay the course and bring blessings to us all. If we find ourselves in darkness, when all things seem lost, let us hope in the hands-on Saviour God. For even in conflict zones like Israel, Gaza, Russia and Ukraine and Myanmar, Christ is King. Even now, he can directly intervene to rescue and to save, to protect and to provide and to turn things around. And in the end, the Lord will bring justice to us. May Christ our King who has opened the kingdom of heaven, have mercy on the nations and bring us to reign with him in glory. Amen.